0: Great Quotes has been running on the Rule Breaker Investing podcast almost as long as my five stock samplers. The first episode in the series was December 2015. And over the years, I've covered a motley array of Great Quotes from Shakespeare to Dr. Seuss. Well, this week, it's Great Quotes, Volume 13. And for this edition, I thought it would be wonderful to feature a set of five outstanding quotes from a living person. Someone very much alive, not just on this earth, but in the minds of many fools. You may have grown up reading Morgan Housel at fool.com. More recently, Morgan wrote the best selling book, The Psychology of Money, and works for the Collaborative Fund. He also continues his long term affiliation with the Motley Fool, often speaking at our member events. And, well, this week's podcast is only the most recent cameo. Because I got to thinking, how notably quotable is Morgan on the subject of money and investing? And the answer is very. He's one of the great writers of our time on the subject. And so, I'm honored and delighted to have Morgan Housel join me for his Rule Breaker Investing podcast debut featuring five of his own best quotes. Great Quotes, Volume 13, The Morgan Housel Edition, only on this week's rule breaker investing.
1: It's the Rule Breaker Investing podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner.
0: And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. You know, I think it's arguable that this might be the greatest month in this podcast's history. Hear me out here. Last week telling their stories volume 3 with Aaron Bush and Tim Byers. You've already heard that. I hope you loved it. This week, Morgan Housel joins me to go Great Quotes, Volume 13, 5 of his best, most memorable and important quotes. Next week, it's going to be my 30th five-stock sampler. It's going to be my last five-stock sampler. And then the week after the fourth week of June, the Market Cap Game Show with returning stars Aaron Bush... And Emily Flippin. So wow, I'm rubbing my hands together about the month of June 2021 for Rule Breaker Investing Podcast listeners. I hope you are too. Of course, it'll all end with June 30th, June mailbag. And so if you have any thoughts during or after my conversation with Morgan this week, I know we'd love to hear from you. Our email address, rbi at You can always tweet us at rbi podcast on Twitter, and maybe I'll feature you at the end of this month. Well, without further ado, I think a longtime Capital F Fool who really needs no introduction to the vast majority of the listeners of my podcast. Here he is, Morgan Housel. Morgan, great to be with you this week.
1: David, good to see you. Good to hear from you. It's been a while. I always love being here.
0: Thank you very much. And I'm so excited about the success of your book. I don't think anybody, at least anybody who knows you or has seen your work uh, at The Fool, at Collaborative Fund, of course, all of the Many columns that you've written and shared with the world. Over there's no one surprised by your success. I don't think. I assume. Maybe I'm going to ask you to be immodest briefly here, Morgan. But did you expect your book
1: to be a success? Well, I'll be. I'll be more than than just immodest. I'll be 100% hottest. I will say, every <laughs> book is um is is like a seed stage startup. in that even if you do everything right and it's a great book and the writing is Christmas good. literally 99% will not sell that well. Mm. And just like like in a seed stage startup, you could be a talented founder, have a great startup idea, hire the best team, and it's probably not going to work. The odds are just stacked against you. You have to know that when you write a book, that going into it, I mean, I have this thing, this is true for social media posts and whatnot, that 90% of virality is luck. I really believe that that to be true. Some people have a, a higher base on their Twitter account that you know their posts are going to get more traction and whatnot. But really, getting some something to take off has an element of luck behind it. Maybe luck's not the best word, but some some element outside of your control. So when I wrote this book, I really wanted my target goal that i really wanted to get was 25,000 copies sold. And my super duper stretch goal, blowing out the doors would be 100,000 copies. And i i I, di- I actually didn't i actually didn't think 100,000 would be possible, but we just crossed half a million two wow. weeks ago. So it's, it definitely did way more than than i thought. Um and it's it's cool to see, it's fun to see, but no, i definitely didn't see it rising to this level.
0: I'm so excited for you and i'm excited for our world because the world is learning it's learning about the biases that we have sometimes in our heads, not just about money, but about life. But it connects with money. And, and a lot of us may not have heard the best from our parents. Not every parent knows how to talk about money with their kids. A lot of us need some help thinking about thinking, especially thinking about thinking about money. And Morgan, you're making the world smarter. And you know that connects so much with us at the Motley Fool trying to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. And that's what you and I are going to do this week because I'm so excited for you to bring on um, five quotations. This is the Great Quotes series. Uh, and my very first Great Quotes series, I, I rocked Jerry Garcia and Antoine de Saint Exupéry. Uh, I did once do a full themed around Warren Buffett. So once before, I just had one person with his quotes, but Morgan, you are right in that very tradition. So, here with Great Quotes, Volume 13, it's the all Morgan Housel edition. And without further ado, I say, let's get started. So, quote number one
1: shoot. Doing well with money is not about what you know, it's not about where you went to school or how smart you are, it's how you behave. This, I think, is really kind of the basis of of my book, that doing well with money is not about how smart you are. It's not about the sophistication of the forecasting models that you might use, how good you are at math, how good you are at economics, how good you are at finance. You can have a PhD in finance from MIT and know all the formulas, know everything there is to to, to know about investing. But if you don't have control over your behavior, over your relationship with greed and fear, over your ability to take a long-term mindset over how gullible you are and who you trust, who you seek information from, you're not gonna do well at investing. That's crystal clear. And on the flip side of that is that you can be someone without any formal financial education, no formal financial training, no connections, no background, no industry experience, and, and do very well at investing if you kind of master or have some grasp over the behavioral elements of investing that really matter. And there aren't many other fields that are like that. Like it's, It would be impossible to say that uh, somebody who has no medical training, no medical experience, no background <laughs> could perform open heart surgery better than a Harvard-trained cardiologist. That would never happen. But the equivalent of that does happen in investing. I think the basis of The Motley Fool, the history of The Motley Fool is almost devoted to that idea that you don't need to be an industry expert in your high tower with all your expert connections, your inside information to do well in this field. And I think, again, that can be confusing for people because there aren't many other industries for which that is the case. And because that's the case, I think it's often left out when we're teaching investing at the academic level, at the professional level. If you're going out and getting your CFA, your chartered financial analyst, kind of the gold standard credential in investing, it's very technically based. It's the formulas, the data. And I'm not saying those aren't important. So there's another element of investing, the behavioral side. How you think about greed and fear and risk that is so much more important than anything that you can know or be taught or learn in school in the traditional sense.
0: You know, I, I'm going to read the quote again. In fact, I think I'm going to just reread each one because I just want to pound this home for our listeners. Doing well with money, Morgan writes, is not about what you know. It's not about where you went to school or how smart you are. It's about how you behave. And reflecting on that quote, Morgan, it's funny for you to start with it's not about what you know. You just pointed out a great example. Uh, you can't do open heart surgery without really knowing that. But isn't it interesting? That it's not about what you know, it's about how you behave. And most of us would think that what you know does one to one lead to how you behave.
1: So, where is the disconnect? I think, I mean, I, I do think there is an element of, of this idea being ingrained in some people's personalities. My my view, and I'm making these numbers up, but I feel like they're directionally right, is that 10% of people do not need any help with their investments. They can do it on their own without any training. They, are, uh, they, they exited the womb understanding compound interest and how business works. They just get it intuitively. Another 10% of people cannot be helped. They're compulsive gamblers. No matter what you tell them, they're always going to want to day trade penny stocks and buy lot of, lot of tickets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then the eighty percent of people want and need good advice. Again, I'm making those numbers up, but I feel like that's that's directionally right. And kind of in, you know inherent in that is that there are there is kind of you know an element of this that is ingrained in some people's personalities about doing well at investing. Some people naturally get it, intuitively get it, and others don't. I do think there are some things that you can know and be taught. That improve your investing behavior. For example, the history of market corrections, of market declines, the frequency and the magnitude of these declines is something that I think even professional investors often underestimate and don't fully fully appreciate. So that is a a type of data, historical data that if you are familiar with it and analyze it, then if once you're comfortable with that data and you're familiar with it, you can say, okay, this is actually going to change how I think about declines. And when the market falls 30%, when my portfolio falls 40, maybe 50%, it's not fun. I don't enjoy it. I don't look forward to it. But if you have the historical context, you could say, okay, this is actually pretty normal. This occurs. This does not preclude good long-term returns that I'm after. And this is actually the cost of admission that I need to be able to put up with to enjoy those long-term returns over time. That's an example of something that you can be taught and learn but it actually just increase. It actually just improves your behavior. It's not necessarily an analytical skill to be patient and to react to these declines with a little bit more equanimity. That's that's a behavioral skill. It's just not mm. something that you can really measure or uh, summarize on a spreadsheet or with a formula.
0: So well said. Let me go with one additional angle before we head over to quotation number two. It's fascinating to me that when we talk about learning investing. The schools that we're kind of falling back on having to talk about, you mentioned CFA, getting your CFA, the CFA Institute, uh, multiple levels to that CFA. Another one that people often think of is the MBA, get your Master's of Business Administration. Neither of those is actually investing. And so far as I can tell, there is no investing school or investing degree. Now, I think that probably at a few colleges, there's a great investing teacher or investing department. But isn't it interesting that you can definitely specialize in med school. You can go to medical school and learn the pulmonary, I don't know, dark arts. You can study almost any aspect of human physiology within medical school. And so I wonder, Morgan, are you aware
1: of like investing degrees or an investing school out there? No. And I'll tell you why. I think there's a really important reason why. It's because the skills that you need to be a good investor are not are not complicated. They're not even that difficult, but they're hard to teach and they're hard to test for. So in the school setting, if I'm a teacher and I have a semester-long class and I need to give my students a grade from A to F and I need a midterm and a final exam, an exam with questions <laughs> – the skills that you need to be a good investor are hard to summarize in that format. So what they end up teaching in school are the formulas, the data, because you can test for those. It's easy to create an exam that I can grade and test for those. But how do you grade for do you have a good relationship with greed and fear? Because that's what's important in investing. But how do you how do you test for that? It's a really hard thing to do. This is why there's also all these other important life skills that don't get test that don't get taught in college. How do you become a good parent, a good spouse? Those are like the most important life skills that exist but you'll never see those in college because you can't teach and test for them. So you end up learning about chemistry and physics that you can test for. I think that's why it doesn't exist. But what are the schools of good investing that exist? One is experience. I think that's the only good one that exists. And others are various media platforms, whether it is The Motley Fool or something like Twitter. Both of those are examples where over time, just being surrounded by a community of like-minded people who are going through the same things that you are, asking the same questions that you are, have a different view of the world than you do so they can add different input that you hadn't thought about before, Though you combine that with experience and that's the school of investing. It's just not a credentialed organization that you have to pay $70,000 a year for, but that's where you actually learn how to invest.
0: Great analysis. Well said. Morgan, let's go on to quotation number two.
1: Controlling your time is the highest dividend that money pays. The ability to do what you want, when you want, with whom you want is priceless. Mm. Now, this is not not necessarily about investing. This is about money. But this, is, I think, is really important that the purpose of investing, the purpose of money is to give yourself a better life. That, I think, is pretty universal. What a good life is, is different from person to person. But if there's a common denominator, that's what it is. And then, so people, what people say is, okay, well, what's the purpose of money? The, the snap judgment, the knee-jerk reaction for 99% of people is you're going to use money to buy stuff. You have more money, you can buy a nicer car, a bigger home, a fancy watch, nice vacations, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is great and fine. I don't want to diminish that in the slightest because I like nice homes and nice cars as much as anyone else. But there is another thing that money does that I think is so easy to overlook that actually brings more people, the greatest number of people, the greatest amount of lasting and enduring joy in in life, which is using money to give yourself a sense of independence and autonomy and controlling your schedule. Just waking up every morning and being able to say, I can do whatever I want today. I can do whatever I want today. And even if most of the time, what you want to do is wake up and go to work. So I'm not saying just because you're independent, you're retired necessarily, but you're just doing what you want, when you want. If you can use your money to do that, that is this, I think something that will bring you a lasting level of joy because everyone knows it's cliche to say that people get used to the nice stuff. You buy a really nice car. It feels good for a month and then you're looking at the next level up that you that you know that that you might be able to afford in the future all the the joy from materialism it's not that it's it's not as bad it's it's not that you shouldn't chase it so to speak it's just easy to overestimate whereas the joy from independence is easy to underestimate and i think there is a sense of even doing the same thing that you've always done but doing it on your own terms doing it because you want to do it and doing it not doing it because someone else is making you do it brings a lasting level of joy. There's a story that I'll tell about Franklin Roosevelt, who when he was five years old, told his mom that he didn't like his life because he was dictated by rules. That every minute of his day was his mother and his teachers and his governesses saying, Franklin, it's seven o'clock. This is what you have to do. It's three o'clock. This is time to do this. He hated the rules, the structure. So his mom told him, she said, okay, Franklin, tomorrow you can do anything you want. You're on your own schedule. Total independence, tomorrow is your day. And his mom wrote in her diary the next day that FDR did the exact same routine that he normally would do, but he did it on his own terms. So just the fact that he was doing it on his own terms because he wanted to do it, he did the same thing. He woke up and he went to school and he did his chores, but he was doing them on his own terms. It wasn't someone else telling him that he had to do it. So I think independence, even if you're doing the same thing, you're going to the same job. The fact that you're doing it because you want to do it makes all the difference in the world and this just gets to the idea that building, you know, saving money, money that you don't spend, just money that you accumulate in savings and investments over time that you're not spending and you don't might not even have a plan to spend it. What's the purpose of that? What's the use of that money if you're not going to spend it? That's a common question. And the answer is that money, that wealth that you're building up and not spending gives you independence and autonomy. And that is I think one of the greatest joys that we can ask for in life.
0: That's wonderful. You know, my schoolboy study of science, specifically physics, ended somewhere in seventh grade. I opted out of it in high school and managed to not have to take any in college. But I do remember the concept of potential energy and kinetic energy. And to apply that schoolboy understanding of physics to what we're discussing right now, Morgan, it seems to me that money is potential energy. And the more that you have, the more opportunity you have. You have an opportunity to put a kid through school. You have an opportunity to take a trip around the world with your three best friends. You have an opportunity to retire early. You have opportunities. When you give money away, you're giving away potential energy to somebody else or to an organization. So I love that concept. I've always kind of operated off of that ever since learning about potential energy and then translating potential energy inevitably into kinetic energy. And looking back over your quote, I want to say it again now, Morgan controlling your time is the highest dividend money pays. The ability to do what you want, when you want, with whom you want, is priceless." And in that particular quotation, just for the fun of it, I don't know how intentional the word was for you here, but you use the word dividend. And that's sort of a fun word to think about and to tease out in our conversation around this quotation, because a dividend is not something that I necessarily shoot for or have as an investor. I'm glad when a company has enough profit that it can pay some additional out to me as a shareholder in the form of dividend and as we get older we probably appreciate income and dividends more controlling your time you didn't say is the highest benefit of money you actually make it a dividend payment was that intentional
1: and does thereby hang a tail it was intentional yes because look when you if you own stock in microsoft they pay a dividend every quarter and basically what they're saying is Mr shareholder, Mrs shareholder, thank you for your service. Here's some money for sticking around. And I think wealth, even that doesn't pay a quarterly cash dividend like that, is doing the same thing. It's just invisible. So if you have wealth, if you have money saved up, the money that's giving you independence, it's it may not be actually writing you a check every quarter that you get in, you know, it's deposited in your bank account, but having that wealth is giving you options. It's giving you options to do other things with your life, to take away worry from your life, to be able to sleep better at night, to give you options about where you want to live, where you want to, who you want to work with, what you want to do, and that dividend that I think is a realistic dividend. Having options and choices is like a hidden dividend. You have to really kind of re- it's it's not it's not it's not tangible most of the time. It's not like a quarterly dividend check, but it's definitely there. And when I think if you sp- spend some time thinking about what you really want out of life and what makes you happy, I think that dividend. Might be the highest dividend yield that you have in your portfolio, just giving yourself options and choices to do what you want in life. Mm.
0: You know, I, I also want to point out I think it was on a recent mailbag, or maybe it's something I saw on Twitter, but one of my fellow fools pointing out that when he started a portfolio for his kids at an age at which they could start to participate and understand, he intentionally selected it, might have been Disney, but it was intentionally a company that paid a dividend. Now, that's a little bit counterintuitive in that usually the great growers of our time, which I try to load up in a kid's account, wouldn't pay dividends. But he did this intentionally because he wanted his child to get the sense that they're getting free money, real money, that's added to the account. A little bit more exciting, whether the stock goes up or down, free money coming in. So, there was a great reminder for a lot of us of the benefits of dividends, especially changing a child's mind or
1: making that Kid folio a little bit more exciting. I think that's great. Like that, that yeah, you know, that's the benefit of an actual dividend is that it's tangible. You can see it. It's money that you can see. But some of the biggest dividends in investing, whether it's a growth stock that's reinvesting the money or controlling your time, are a little bit less tangible. You have to go out of your way to kind of think about them and find them. Yep. Before
0: we move on to quotation number three, Morgan, let me ask you a question. This is if it's too personal a question, please just dodge it. Uh, you'll be good at that, I'm sure. I'm good at that too. Uh, but the question is basically, are you at a point in your life now where you are financially independent? Are you Are you exhibiting, are you feeling that autonomy? Are you near it, past it? If you've tasted it, could you tell us some about what it tastes like
1: for you? I would say independence exists on a spectrum. It's not just, do you have enough money to retire today? There's a huge spectrum of independence. Having enough money in the bank that you can um, uh, work your way through a medical emergency, work your way through a job layoff and not mm-hmm. have to take just the first job that comes your way. You can wait and take a good job that comes your way. That's a level of independence. So do do my wife and I have independence? Uh, yes, but it's, it's on a spectrum. Some people are more independent, some people are less. And the independence that we've gained over time that is greater today than it was five or 10 years ago, I genuinely think is one of the few things in my life that has led me to sleep a little bit better, made me a little bit less anxious, there aren't many of those things in life that are like that, but I think it's it's if I compare myself today in 2021 to who I was in 2011, I think if I'm a little bit less anxious today, that's the reason. I have a little bit more financial independence than I did back then, and it's one of the things that I value most.
0: So well said. Let's move on to Morgan Housel great quotation number 3.
1: The most important part of every plan is planning on your plan, not going according to plan. <laughs> Now, this is something I I think I came up with that many years ago. I think when when I was when I was when I was still at at the Molly Full full time. But I think the last twelve months, last eighteen months, whatever we're calling it now, of COVID nineteen has really reinforced this. Because look, as someone who is really interested in the economy and kind of the, the mechanics of markets and the economy, people in my field, so to speak, spent the better part of the last decade debating, sometimes arguing, over what was the biggest risk to the economy. What was the biggest risk to, you know, what was going to cause the next recession? That's what takes up all the oxygen in the economics industry. And we tend to personify the risks that are out there. So people asked, was the biggest risk to the economy, was it Barack Obama? Was it the tax hikes, the stimulus packages? Was that the biggest risk? Was it Ben Bernanke? Was it all the money printing after the financial crisis? Was that the biggest risk? Was it Donald Trump? Was it policies of the last four? Was he the biggest risk? That's what took up all the oxygen in the industry. and It's almost comical to think about that now because now we know in hindsight that the biggest risk to the economy by an order of magnitude in a completely different universe Mm. was a virus that nobody was talking about. It was not on any economic forecast, no analyst conference call. No one was talking about it until the moment it arrived and it started wreaking havoc. It did the most economic damage of anything since the Great Depression. And I think that idea that the biggest risk is what no one's talking about, the biggest risk is what no one sees coming, is always the case in economics. Whether it was Lehman Brothers couldn't find a buyer in 2008 that started the financial crisis, or September the 11th, or Pearl Harbor, even the Great Depression itself is something that a lot of historians have pointed out, effectively no one saw coming. Did they see Excess? Yes. Did they see a depression coming? No. So it's always the case that the biggest risk is what you don't see. And inherent in that is when we're at the individual level, when we're making a budget for our family, a budget for the companies that we work at, thinking about our asset allocation, realizing that the biggest risk of your future, of all of our futures, is something that you, David, and myself and everyone else cannot see coming. We cannot even be thinking about it right now. I mean, if if you and I were talking in 1998, and we're talking about the biggest economic risks of the next decade. No one would have said a terrorist attack in 2001. Like, mm-hmm. that's always the case. Carl Richards, a financial advisor, has this quote that I love where he says, risk is what's left when you think you've thought of everything. <laughs> and I always, I always really appreciate that at the kind of the – Personal financial, you know, family uh, financial planning level when thinking about our own budgets and our own asset allocation. That I can think about the future in my planning when I'm planning for retirement or whatnot, and think about okay, here are the big risks. Like, what's inflation going to be in the future? I can think, I can kind of think about risks, but the biggest risk is what no one's talking about. And if you grasp that, then the takeaway is having a little bit more room for error in your individual financial planning. Mm. Realizing that if you realize that you can't see all the risks that are in front of you, you need to prepare for risks that you're not even thinking about, that you can't even contemplate. So most of the time when the economy is going well, the stock market is doing well, most people will say, I don't want to hold cash because that's that's a burden on my growth that's taking away from the growth that I that I would have. And I think for most people, once they hit the once in a decade period where the world falls apart and surprises them, like last March, let's say, they realized that actually the value of holding a, a you know, a, a, a reasonable, appropriate level of cash, that they were actually earning a higher quote unquote return on that money than they realized. Because when they needed it and they had the options that came from it, it was the most valuable asset that they had. And if you if you fool yourself into thinking that you can see all the risks that are coming, you're never going to have enough room for error in your financial plan to deal with those surprises in
0: life. Mm. Nassim Nicholas Taleb popularized the notion of black swans, the idea that you can't really plan for everything. There's always, in a world of white swans, we see white swans, there's always going to be that black swan that pops up, whether it's COVID, whether it's 9-11. But assuming you generally agree with that, Morgan, it seems to me what you've just said is, while COVID might be a black swan and 9-11 might be a black swan, the concept of a black swan recurring from one context or another is regular enough that they're
1: actually, in a way, white swans. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think if you look historically, about every 10 years, not exactly every 10 years, but r- roughly once per decade, the world breaks in a way that almost no one saw coming. Um, COVID-19 was definitely that. September 11th was that. You could say the fall of the Soviet Union was that, World War two, the Great Depression. There's all these events That very smart people by and large didn't see coming that changed everything when they occurred. And I, I think it's maybe tempting, it's comforting to think that those kind of events like 9 11 and COVID are hopefully a thing of the past. And in many ways, maybe those kind of specific events might be a thing of the past. Are we ever gonna have a terrorist attack that mimics 9 11 in the United States? Maybe, but probably not. But we're gonna have surprises. We're going to have national security threats in the United States. They're just going to take a different form. There's a great quote that I love from Daniel Kahneman, who's a psychologist who won the Nobel Prize in economics, where he said, I'm paraphrasing here, he said, when you are surprised, the correct takeaway is to learn that the world is surprising. It's not to look back and say, oh, I was surprised by this event, so how can I update my view of the world to make sure I'm not surprised by that event again? When you are surprised, the correct takeaway is to say, there are things that can happen in the world that I never saw coming that are going to have a big impact on my life and other people's lives. And I think, if you again, if you grasp that notion, it just pushes you towards having more room for error yep. in your financial planning.
0: Boy, does does that ever make sense to me. So here's the notable quotable. I'm just going to rock spontaneously in this conversation. The next black swan is a white swan.
1: That's good. I like that.
0: Thank you. You know, one other angle, and let me reread quote number three once again. The most important part of every plan is planning on your plan, not going according to plan, which again feels kind of like black swans and white swans to me. But I was thinking about that word plan, which of course you repeat, I believe, four times in that one sentence. When I announced my own transition a few weeks ago, I said, you know, the plan is there is no plan. And so, I, I, I feel as if this is sort of a rule-breaker mentality. Um, maybe we're more improvisational musicians. We don't actually have a score that we're following. It's not classical, it's not rock. And maybe it's not just rule-breakers, maybe it's all of humanity. The better we're ready to improvise and evolve, the better we're likely to adapt and survive. And I'm thinking, Morgan, especially with money, back to our key subject, your wonderful book, The Psychology Of money, I'm thinking again with you that these are all great reasons to have an emergency fund, to have money set aside six months worth of living expenses. One of the kind of default personal finance 101 suggestions that we have made, and anybody really who studies or advises around personal finance makes uh, that six month emergency fund because whether you ever use it or not, it's actually kind of the principle
1: of the matter. That's right. I mean, here's what's here's here's the, the, the psychology of an emergency fund. If you are gainfully employed and you feel like you have a lot of job security and the market is rocking, your portfolio is rocking, the natural reaction is to say, why do I need this emergency fund? It's an anchor on my net worth. It's an anchor on my compounding. I should be investing this money, putting it to better use. That's the mentality that pulls off of everyone when things are going well. And then when things don't go well, which is going to be the case for everyone at some point, you're going to realize that that fund is actually the most valuable asset you own by far. And I'll tell you why. We can get into this into the next quote. I don't want to give away too much here. But the reason it's so valuable is that if you can make sure that you never have to sell the stocks that you do own, you're never mm. forced to sell the stocks that you do own, that's when they're going to compound. The purpose of your emergency fund is to make sure that you never have to sell the stocks that you own. That's Amen, the brother. Of it. And when you realize that, then actually the quote unquote return that you're earning on your cash. Is, he actually, is actually huge. It's hidden. It's a little bit nebulous, but it's actually big. Because if by owning that cash that earns 0% prevents you from having to sell your stocks in March of 2020, then the actual return on that cash is like, might be 10 or 20% in, in kind of theoretical terms, but in a very real sense as well.
0: That is such an important insight. Thank you for sharing that. That's wonderful. And you're right. Quotation number four, which I'm looking because you were kind enough to send them to me ahead of time, so I know where we're heading. And it's almost like we set this transition up. Morgan, what is great quotation
1: number four? Save like a pessimist and invest like an optimist. Love it. This, I think, is really important because a lot of people would view optimism or pessimism as Black and white, you have to be one or the other. There are obvious pessimists in the world. Everyone knows who they are. There are pure optimists in the world. And I think there's a kind of an internal mental struggle of people to be like, which one of those am I? And I think most people will, or maybe not most, but a lot of people, a lot of people listening to this, will lean towards I'm the optimist. And that's me. I know that, I know that's David. I think that's that's wonderful. I don't think though that being an optimist precludes having a pessimistic side of your personality. I think you need to learn how to straddle both. I'll give you an example of this at the business level. When Bill Gates started Microsoft in the 1970s, 74, I think it was whenever, he was making probably the most optimistic bet that any founder, any CEO has ever made, which was in the 1970s. He said, everyone in the world should have a computer on their desk. That was the most swinging for the fences optimistic bet that anyone has ever made. But at the same time, Bill Gates said at the time, and he he kept to this through his entire tenure as CEO, that he always wanted to have enough cash in the bank to keep the company running for 12 months with no revenue, Mm. which is like the most pessimistic way to run a company. He was doing that because he knew that he was going to face huge competition, huge challenges, huge uh, times when he'd have to pivot, pivot his entire product line. So at the same moment that he was so optimistic about computers, he was so pessimistic about the realities of running a business in the real world. And I think being able to to get those two to coexist, to get optimism and pessimism to coexist is so important to sustaining over time. Charlie Munger has this great quote where he says, the first rule of compounding is to never interrupt it unnecessarily. And I think the only way that you can do that as an investor is like we said earlier, to make sure that the stocks that you do own, you are never under any circumstances forced to sell them at an inopportune time. And the only way that you can do that is if you have enough cash, enough pessimism to where you are acknowledging that the short term of everyone's life can be a constant chain of setbacks and disappointments and regrets and recessions and bear markets and pandemics that you need to be able to survive financially, to stick around long enough for your long-term bets to actually work and to actually pay off. And like we said earlier, when you hold that cash and everything's going well, it feels like a burden. You say, why am I doing this? And then once every 10 years or so, you'll say, oh, now I get it. Now I, now, now I see why that was so valuable. And I think that's why it's so important to, to learn how to get optimism and pessimism to coexist. Realize that there is a time and a place for both. And usually the the difference between the two is pessimism in the short run, optimism in the long run. I think that's a healthy way to think about how the world works. And it's not, I think once you can realize that those two are not mutually exclusive, that those two canons should live together, it opens up just a more realistic way about how the uh, more realistic view of how the world works
0: well it 's an integrated view, and I really appreciate that and you know in my own experience morgan i 'll say I think part of why I love my company and I think we 're kind of a great company, even though we 're a private company that nobody' really invested in other than our employees, is because if you ever hang out around our finance department you 're going to be surrounded by very conservative Hyper vigilant accountant types who are like our chief financial officer, Kira McDonough, or Olin Douglas before her. All of our finance team is, even though they're lovely people and there's a lot of optimism in them, they are hyper vigilant and the investors at our company, those picking stocks, those helping run the services. Most prominently today, my brother Tom and the many people who work right alongside him are, in fact, optimists. They coexist at the same company, but they're basically an integrated right and left side of the brain, all working together, and it's just a smarter way to go. So I'm a big fan of very hypervigilant accountant types in your finance department and real opportunity seekers. In our case, Among investors, but for other people, it might be in sales or
1: biz dev. I mean, one way to think about that is Kira, the chief financial officer, is ensuring that the motley fool will stick around long enough for Tom's optimistic stock bets to pay (laughs) off.
0: (laughs) Really well put. You know, one of the things I love to do as a fellow fool is I love to reverse things and just see what it sounds like or feels like. So invert. So let's have fun briefly, Morgan, and invert. Great quotation number four. So save like an optimist, invest like a pessimist. Could you describe for me the movie that you see as I
1: give you that one-line plot? Save like an optimist, invest like a pessimist. What happens? I see someone who goes bankrupt and is bitter about it because they didn't have any fun going bankrupt. (laughs) (laughs) They they, they eventually run out of money. And in the process of running out of money, they didn't have any fun because they were pessimists to begin with. It's the worst of both worlds.
0: And in inverting that quote, therefore, and seeing the dystopia that results, we can clearly see the truth of the quote as Morgan has presented it. And I love that line. All right. And one more angle before we move to our final quotation, Morgan, you know, thinking about investing like an optimist. I mean, I do that and I support that, but I also want to talk briefly about how some people are playing with the stock market today, a game, if you will, that I hope will stop sometime soon. you know, The Motley Fool really got its initial break by making up a penny stock that didn't exist and hyping it with a made-up online account, and uh, trying to prove a point that pump and dump penny stocks are not a real way to invest in any sustainable way. And while we did that almost 30 years ago as an April Fool's joke that got picked up by The Wall Street Journal and Forbes, these days I'm starting to see stocks that aren't just penny stocks being pumped and dumped. GameStop, AMC. This week, most recently, Clover Health. I'll even say Wendy's. One of the people I follow on Twitter, Thomas Cade, at Thomas underscore K-A-E-D-E. I love this tweet from him today, Morgan. He said, almost made a big move on Wendy's today. But then my wife decides she preferred to eat somewhere else for lunch, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> so, Morgan Housel, what is your take on what's happening with the market and the games that I
1: wish would stop? I would first say crazy speculation has always existed in the stock market. So you can go back to the 1800s and find stories of crazy, sometimes fraudulent speculation occurring that kind of pushed up the value of a nearly worthless stock overnight. That kind of stuff has existed literally for, for hundreds of years. If there is something that is different now, it's that I think the barriers to entry to crazy behavior have been diminished. And There's two things that caused it. One was the removal of trading costs, of of, of trading commissions that occurred in almost every brokerage account in the last two years. Hmm. By and large, a great thing because it made it easier for small investors to invest without having a lot of friction in their way. That's a good thing. It also made it much easier for people who are trading and speculating and not investing in companies, but they're just trading to sit there and hit buy and sell on their phone all day long. And you see these stories. I remember last summer seeing a story that there was a Robin Hood trader. I think he was 19 years old That the wall street journal profiled who had traded, I think 19,000 times in one month. And I think like, like you do the math on what his day might must be like. And it's just constantly pecking buy sell, by sell. Mm. And you can do that now because there's no trading fees. Even 10 years ago, you couldn't do that. Or if you did that, you would be, you'd be racking up so many fees that it would, it would, it, you know, it, it stood in your way. Now that that's gone, speculation, the barriers to speculation are lower. The other thing, of course, is social media and things like Reddit and the Wall Street Bets Forum. By and large, I am totally pro those kind of endeavors. Motley Fool is in many ways that kind of endeavor as well. But it has made, it has opened the door towards those kind of endeavors that are specifically designed towards speculation. The Motley Fool, when it was founded and still to this day, is one of those meeting areas, those chat rooms, if you want to call that. That's a bad word for it. But an area where investors can come together and discuss their investments, their long-term investments. Once you create a Motley Fool of sorts for trading, and those exist for pure speculation, that's a different animal. And once you create one of those for Something that is borderline fraudulent of just intentionally creating a short squeeze on these stocks so that you can stick it to a hedge fund manager. That's a completely different animal. But that didn't exist even five years ago. So this is a very new thing that we're dealing with, even if the idea of crazy behavior in the stock market has existed for as long as there has been a stock market.
0: It has been pretty weird. In a lot of ways, maybe it was inevitable that over time, Uh, it started out as kind of trying to stick it to the man, I think. It was all about those hedge funds that are, quotes, evil. And I'm not a big fan of most hedge funds, but let's, let's drive them out of their short positions and let's use call options and things to accelerate driving them out of their short positions, covering and creating short squeezes to drive up stocks. So it's been kind of weird, but Morgan, it might be about to get weird or weirder when since these are real-world companies and these are real-world dollars, even as ephemeral as a 60% daily move might be, some of these companies launching secondary offerings, cashing in, some of the executives cashing out thanks to the great fortune, and I'll assume it's not coordinated. I'm not sure that's the right assumption, but I will assume that this is just happenstance. This is just something funny that's happening out there on the Reddit discussion boards. It's not being manipulated, but maybe that's not the right assumption. But regardless, the real-world effects that are coming potentially out of this could make the world, yeah, even weirder. I've often said, make your portfolio reflect your best vision for our future. And the WAG at this point might wonder, oh, okay, so is our best vision of the future more mall game retailers? And hanging out in movie theaters, paying ten bucks for popcorn.
1: I mean, that's that's a great point. There's totally uh, an alternative world in which GameStop and AMC are either out of business or nearly out of business. But I think both of those companies have raised money in the stock market, have raised capital because their stock prices have been so inflated by these meme investors. They've, they're taking advantage of it. And you can't blame them for that. Um, but in a way, that's going to give those companies, maybe you know, breathe more life into them that keeps them in business. Not because they are they are justified or you know from a customer standpoint, they are they deserve to stay in business, just because they've been able to raise so much money from the craziness that's existing in the stock market.
0: So investing like an optimist can mean a lot of different things. For me personally, I think for us at The Motley Fool, it is a beautiful word, invest. It comes from the Latin investiri. That means to wear the clothes, to put on the clothes of, like priestly vestments, the same Latin root. And it's really like wearing the home team jersey to your game this weekend. And whether your team wins or loses, you're going to keep that jersey on, not just through a bad game or a bad season, but for years and years. That's, for me, what investing means. I do think that the opposite of investing, I guess, technically is not investing using logic. But for me, the opposite of investing is trading. And I don't think trading really relates ultimately to pessimism or optimism. It relates to speculation. And when it is in such a hyper short-term focused context, it loses all meaning. And I tend to just kind of tune it out, which is kind of what I'm trying to do with all the whole meme stock thing.
1: There's almost a sense of what trading is is like hyper optimism of like when I buy a stock or when you buy a stock I think we're saying I'm pretty confident that over the next 5 or 10 or 30 years the odds of success fall in my favor. But if you're trading you're saying I am very confident that the odds of success will fall in my favor over the next 30 minutes. And that's not something that I it's it's almost like extreme optimism that is so intense that it just pushes you over the edge.
0: Really well said. And I'm thinking about the NFTs and I'm thinking about um, other forms of uh, cryptocurrencies. And, other things. And, and the ones that I, I like are the ones that feel real and real world and are going to matter 10 years from now. And a lot of the things that I don't like, which is probably the majority of that sort of thing today, are things where I think somebody's excited about because they think they can sell it to somebody else
1: shortly for more. That's it. It's just the greater fool, lowercase f, theory of investing.
0: Thank you, sir. Well said. I'm so glad we had that exchange. I I was curious about your take on what's happening out there in the markets. Speaking of the markets, great quotation number 5 from Morgan Housel.
1: If markets never fell, they wouldn't be risky. And if they weren't risky, they'd get really expensive. And when they get really expensive, they fall. Now this David, I think is, is something that you and I might have a back and forth on this because I think there might be a tinge of this that you have some that you, that you have a different point of view on. But for me, it's the, the real takeaway from this quote is saying, if the market falls and it does, every stocks every stock will fall and fall big over time. Um, it, it doesn't mean the market's broken. It doesn't mean something bad happened. It doesn't mean you screwed up. It doesn't mean you made a mistake. It doesn't mean that someone is to blame it's a completely natural, normal, unavoidable part of of how markets work. The reason, the entire reason that you can earn good returns in the stock market over a long period of time is because they are volatile in the short run. That's the cost of admission that you have to be willing to pay to do well over time. If markets were never volatile, if you didn't have to give anything up, if you didn't have to pay any cost of admission, why would they be so lucrative over time? I think when you view it that way, then again, when you have these big declines like we all deal with from time to time. It makes it a little bit more palatable to put up with. Now, I think if there is an element David that I want your point of view on this. It's the idea that I use the word expensive and that expensive does not preclude a great investment. If anything, it might be the indication that you're onto something and that a company is worth being valued that much. So maybe that word is, you know, could be could be skewed differently, but to me the big takeaway from this is realizing how normal and natural and inevitable big volatility is over the course Of your career as a long term investor? Well, and I
0: think this is a great quotation, Morgan, and I appreciate it. And I love all of your quotations and what you've contributed this week. For me, it's as simple as one year out of every three, the market drops. And that's been historically true for a century or more. And so, yeah, one year out of every three, the market actually drops. And sometimes I've thought, oh, what a bad business model we have at the Motley Fool, because for one third of the time, People are paying us money for us to give them advice, and it's going to lose them money. One year out of every three. That doesn't feel good. That doesn't happen even for many cyclical industries. They don't have a situation upside down where you're paying them and literally losing money as you pay them. But I think the good news for The Motley Fool and for any investor, and I'm not talking to the traders here this week, I'm talking to investors, is that two years out of every three, the market rises, and three years out of every three, on average, they rise around 10% annualized. And that is why, in my in my parlance, Morgan, I've made a lifetime commitment to the stock market. It doesn't really matter to me how we do in 1991 or 2008 or 1997, or 2015, because I'm in it to win it for my entire life. I have been from the start. I will be to the very end. And so, that's another wonderful way, I think, to achieve serenity and not get so caught up in the movement of the markets, which, as you point out with this quote, will sometimes get expensive and will inevitably fall.
1: I think, I think if there's one thing that separates great investors from investors who do okay or do poorly over time, it's understanding that. It's understanding that volatility in the short run does not prevent or preclude long-term returns, even extremely good successful long-term returns over time. I think that it's, it's not complicated. It's not, it's not complex, but it's, it's the single most important thing that matters to long-term investing success. And I will say
0: that word expensive, you're right, that does trigger me a little bit in this this quote. But And you would already understand why. And I think anybody who's listened to this podcast for a few weeks, let alone a few years, would understand that as a rule breaker, I specifically think that one of the great market blind spots that enables us as mom and pop individual investors to beat the averages are that a lot of professional people, going back to quote number one, Morgan, a lot of people who went to a great school and are very smart and yet aren't very good investors, it's because they pay too much attention to a traditional understanding of, "quotes expensive. And as it turns out, one of the truisms of my lifetime, anyway, has been the stocks that have looked expensive, ironically, fortunately, I figured this out early in life, ironically, are often not just winners. They're often the very best stocks of the generation. And so, for me, as a rule breaker, I do admittedly look for expensive, now not expensive markets, perhaps per se, but specifically expensive stocks. And not just any expensive stock, but one that fits pattern recognition around where are the winners and where's innovation happening. And those things, in
1: my experience, always look expensive. I don't think there's ever been a. Super successful company that looked cheap during its entire run up. Uh, it's, it's 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 never existed. This is a point, David. I'm I'm not ashamed to admit this. That ten years ago, I didn't understand that view. I didn't disagree with it, but whenever I heard you say that, I would kind of cock my head and say, "I what?" It, it went against everything that I had been taught. Kind of being, uh, you know, most interested in value investing. And I get it now. It makes sense. It does not. It does not mean that those stocks won't be volatile. It doesn't mean that at all. It might mean that they're more volatile. But it's it's, it's a point that if there's one thing that's changed in how I view investing over the last decade, it's probably something close to that. That that it's impossible to invest successfully over time if you're just going to say what stocks trade at under a 12 PE ratio. (laughs) Those are the winners. It's just so much more complicated than that. There's so much more of a social aspect of why these companies are successful why they deserve to be valued at this way, and especially if you view kind of the distribution of the economy as tail-driven, a, a small number of companies, a small number of industries account for most of the gain, most of the improvement. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, those a small subset of companies deserve to trade at premium valuations. Those are the companies that are going to do well over time.
0: Well, thank you for that, Morgan, and that was very kind of you to say. I do want to give two quick disclaimers. And again, for anybody who's a regular listener, you already know this. If you've been a rule breaker of vintage uh, measured in years, you already know what I'm about to say. But two quick disclaimers. One is, if you take this approach saying expensive is actually a buy signal, it's not a reason to avoid. You have to be A, willing to lose and lose horribly and lose somewhat consistently. You have to be willing to be wrong. and I have a lot of egg on my face at almost every five-year era, all the way through bear markets and bull at fool.com. I think I had more bad stock picks and more bad stock picks than anyone in Fool history. So That willingness to lose, uh, you have to have. The good news, the math of it, as you know, Morgan, is the most you can ever lose is 100%. I've still never done that but the most you can make is infinite. And a few great winners wipe out not just one bad loser, they wipe out all your losers and leave money on the table. So, A, you have to be willing to lose, many or not. And then B, my second disclaimer is that not every expensive stock is attractive. It is specifically to really fast review the five other traits that you want from a Rule Breaker before you get to the sixth, which is that you want people to think it's overvalued. We're only talking about top dogs and first movers in important emerging industries that have sustainable competitive advantages, excellent past price appreciation, good management and smart backing, and a strong brand. If you find those five traits and everybody thinks that's expensive, that's where you should get excited. You shouldn't get excited about movie theaters, in my experience,
1: what's so interesting about that to me is that the math behind you can you can if if, if you make a hundred stock picks, eighty of them can be really poor, and it, just as long as three or four of them are. The math behind of that is so simple; it's just not intuitive to most people. And I think that's why it's so overlooked. It's actually a really simple concept, but in the moment, in the trenches, so to speak, it's not intuitive to think that if you make a hundred stock picks, you're going to lose most of your money on eighty of them, or whatever the math might be.
0: Right. I I agree. I I do want to make it clear in closing that I've never thought of it as just like, let's roll the dice and a couple of these will win and everything else doesn't matter. Truly, every pick that I've made and every stock that any of our listeners might buy, I sure hope that you think it's going to win and you're aiming high to be right 60% of the time, as I've often said. Even if you can't approach that, it's the right mentality. So, Even though it is true that a minority of our picks will typically carry a whole portfolio if it's invested over the long term, the only term that counts, I still think you should always go in not thinking you're a crazy riverboat gambler who's going to roll double sixes three times in a row at some point, and that's going to be what wins it for you. It's really much more the quiet, measured pace of just trying to find excellence, buy it, add to it over time, sell mediocrity. That's how we invest. Well, Morgan, it has been a few years since I started this podcast. This is the first time we've been together on it. I trust that we won't even let years pass, maybe months pass before maybe you'd agree to come back on. This was a delight to share this together.
1: This is always fun, David. I so appreciate our conversation. would love to come back again. Thank you, Morgan. Fool on.
0: Well, I hope you had half as much fun as I did. If you did, you had a great time this week. Thanks again to Morgan and those five wonderful quotations, really just wonderful thoughts and each of them more than one thought. So I loved teasing out the conversation around each of those lines with my talented guest star. Well, next week, it's going to be my 30th five-stock sampler. I'm not sure yet exactly what the five-stocks will be or what the theme is, but one thing's for sure, it's my 30th, which is a big round number, and it's very likely my last for reasons that anybody who's been paying attention over the last month would fully understand. So, my 30th five-stock sampler next week. In the meantime, have a great week. Stay Foolish out there. Fool on!